Welcome to Created to Reign, a podcast of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. I'm Cal Beisner. And I'm David Lee Gates. And today we're going to continue with our discussion of one of the landmark documents of the Cornwall Alliance, which is the Cornwall Declaration on Environmental Stewardship. And we have been talking on various podcasts about our concerns and our beliefs. And now we're going to finish up with the final section of this declaration called Our Aspirations. Where do we think we should be going into the future? We aspire to a world in which human beings care wisely and humbly for all creatures, first and foremost for their fellow human beings, recognizing their proper place in the created order. First and foremost, our environmental stewardship should have human well-being as its number one priority. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't care about other things, but we realize that human beings, the only ones who are made in the image of God, are the most important. One environmental leader back in the 1960s said if he saw a uh, grizzly bear attacking a child in the remote forests of the American Northwest, he would be hard-pressed to decide whether to defend the child or the bear because the child was invading the bear's territory. I wouldn't be hard-pressed at all. If I had the appropriate gun on me, I'd shoot the bear, and quickly, because people are more valuable than bears. That doesn't mean that I'll just go out and shoot every bear I see. It means that I put top priority on human beings. The next of these aspirations, David, is that we aspire to a world in which objective moral principles, not personal prejudices, guide moral action. How does that distinguish the Cornwall Alliance from a lot of the environmental movement? We are a moral people. And one of the issues that has always bothered me with the environmental movements have been essentially that they believe humans are somehow at least equal to, if not subservient to the rest of creation, because everything we do destroys creation. Therefore, creation is to be protected, creation is to be saved, and if humans, as you said, if humans have to be sacrificed to save the bear, well, so be it, because humans are subservient to nature. And in order for us to get along properly with each other, as well as with the nature around us, we need moral principles, not just personal prejudices, not, well, I prefer this sort of a landscape. Well, I prefer that kind of a forest and so on. We need to have clear rules from God. We talked about this a bit in the last podcast. We need to appeal to God's moral law, not to the shifting sand of societal values. If we did that, morality would change from generation to generation. But because Morality reflects the very character of God because God's law reveals his own righteousness and perfection. Morality cannot change. And what is moral today is going to be moral tomorrow. What is immoral today is going to be immoral tomorrow. So this means we, we need to go back to God's law. We also aspire to a world in which right reason including sound theology and the careful use of scientific methods, guides the stewardship of human and ecological relationships. And David, you and I see an awful lot of instances in which 
what's going on in the environmental movement is pretty far from what we would call right reason. Definitely. I mean, if right reason includes sound theology and careful use of scientific methods, then what we have seen, obviously, is theology is a problematic area where a lot of people have added their beliefs, have deleted God's uh, commandments, and have changed it all over the years. That's why we have a number of competing religions that claim to be ways to God. And of course, we know there's only one true way to God. But the second half of that is based on the careful use of scientific methods. And what we're now seeing is post-normal science and possibly moving even to something called postmodern science. Mm-hmm. And this gets above the, the normal scientific method where you use deduction, where facts are used to test theories and hypotheses and essentially make laws of nature based upon the observations. And instead, what happens is in these post-normal science discussions, you include all viewpoints, whether it's by experts or people that just have feelings of the way things should be done. Mm -hmm. You have belief systems that don't necessarily braced in facts. I mean, the fundamental difference is that the scientific method is fact-based problem-solving, whereas post-normal science is facts can be made up, facts can be disposed of, and that the goal is not necessarily to solve the problem, but to reach a conclusion. And so in many cases, this post-normal science approach is an attempt to move us from where we are to where they want us to be regardless of what's happening in between. Yeah, you recently shared a couple of articles uh, with me out of a couple different referee journals that were just stunning to me in their utter irrationality. And one of them was, I mean, this was in a physics journal, but this was an attempt to bring the ideas of the woke anti-white privilege movement into physics and to say that our understanding of physics has been twisted by whiteness. <laughs> this is not the careful use of scientific method. Often, too, we see what's called life experience elevated above publicly repeatable empirical observation in driving scientific conclusions. And this really leads to the politicization and the weaponization of science. When science is functioning at its best, it's not anybody's weapon about anything. It's not the servant of any political ideology. Science at its best is what happens when people investigate the world around them and in all honesty, recognizing their own limits, say, this is what I'm finding. Come and and look with me. Do you see the same thing? That's, I think, proper scientific method, not the uh, the weaponization. Another of our aspirations is to a world in which liberty as a condition of moral action is preferred over government-initiated management of the environment as a means to common goals. Why is it that liberty is so important to good management of the environment? And that brings us to our next aspiration. Uh, We aspire to a world in which the relationships between stewardship and private property are fully appreciated, allowing people's natural incentive to care for their own property, to reduce the need for collective ownership and control of resources and enterprises, 
and in which collective action, when deemed necessary, takes place at the most local level possible. I sometimes will get this point across to people very, very simply. Why do you find graffiti on public bathroom walls and not on your bathroom wall at home? And the answer is pretty obvious. You own your bathroom wall at home and you want to take good care of it. And partly that's because it's your property. You appreciate it. You you want it to look nice. But partly, too, it's because you want it to have good resale value in the future. And so you don't mess it up. But what everybody owns, nobody owns. What nobody owns, nobody has incentive to take care of. Socialism, public ownership of things, really means nobody in particular has an incentive to take care of it. So not only are private property market economies, free market economies, more productive and therefore lift people farther out of poverty into greater prosperity and therefore a greater ability to afford a clean, healthful, beautiful, safe environment, but also they have more incentive to make the environment that way because they have a private stake in it. And that's called the tragedy of the commons, because the idea is Aristotle defined and Garrett Hardin in 68 redefined was the idea that people take care of what is their own more than they take care of what is commonly owned. If common ownership is everywhere, people generally tend not to care about it. Whereas if private ownership exists, then you tend to take more pride in your own and not in what is commonly held. Yeah. And in fact, studies have shown that people are far more prone to spend gratuitously money that they didn't earn than money that they did earn. We're far more wasteful of other people's stuff than we are of our stuff. And so private ownership is really essential to good environmental stewardship. Our next point here on aspirations is that we want a world in which widespread economic freedom, which is integral to private market economies, makes sound ecological stewardship available to ever greater numbers. This has to do with our attitude toward the kinds of government that develop in other countries or in our own as well. Are we going to favor more restrictive, oppressive, collectivist, autocratic government or government that is much more open to free action, to liberty? In my book, Is Capitalism Bad for the Environment? I actually develop at some length. The environmental record of socialist and communist countries is just horrendous by comparison with the environmental record of free market capitalist countries. And are there problems in both? Of course there are. But the really important question is not, are there problems? It's compared to what? What are the options? And there just are no options between private ownership and public ownership. Now, there may be a difference of mix between how much is privately owned and how much is publicly owned. But what we find over and over again is that the privately owned is better cared for, the publicly owned is less well cared for, and therefore, we should want to minimize the publicly owned and maximize the privately owned. 
let me read this again. It says, we aspire to a world in which widespread economic freedom makes sound ecological stewardship available. Do we really want a world where there is not widespread economic freedom? I would say as Christians, and we're concerned about our neighbors and about their well-being, then of course we want widespread economic freedom and widespread economic development. But there are groups, particularly environmental groups, that want to keep people, as we said before, I equals P-A-T. We want population reduced, we want affluency decreased, and we want technological uh, advances diminished. So the idea is we want to keep people few in number, poor in economic condition, and technologically disadvantaged. And I can't imagine anybody that really loves their neighbor as they love themselves that would want to see a world in that condition. The last of the aspirations in the Cornwall Declaration for the Stewardship of the Environment, which anybody can read at cornwallalliance.org, that's cornwallalliance.org, click on landmark documents and you'll find it listed under there, is that we aspire to a world in which advancements in agriculture, industry, and commerce not only minimize pollution and transform most waste products into efficiently used resources, but also improve the material conditions of life for people everywhere. This ties together the importance of economic development and environmental stewardship. David, maybe you can finish us off by just talking a bit about how important it is that we not divorce those two from each other. We want to enhance technology, and that includes technological advancements in agriculture, industry, and commerce. As we've said before, and we'll probably say again, technology allows you a lot of things that you couldn't do before. It allows you to do things more efficiently. It allows you to do things more cleanly without producing a lot of byproducts that are harmful to the environment. Technology is generally a good thing. There are clearly places in which it's been misused. I won't deny those, but in particular, technological advancements allow us a better way to take care of our environment, to minimize pollution, to transform waste products into other things that can be used so that we can enhance life all across the planet. Many times, especially when I'm speaking at universities and colleges, I will tell young Christian students one of the most wonderful callings I can think of for many of them is to engineering. Why is that? Because engineering is basically problem solving. Engineering is saying, we got a problem here. Let's figure out how to solve it. We have this pollution happening here. Let's figure out how to solve it. We have this land abuse happening here. Let's figure out a way to solve it. Technology all springs from engineering. And on the issue of pollutants. Every time an engineer figures out a way to turn what was just a waste product tossed out of no value to anybody into a valuable resource, we're making a wonderful bit of progress there. And this engineering is itself an activity in the image of God. God engineered the whole cosmos, and he made us in his image. And we ought to be trying to be engineers in various different ways ourselves. When we do that, for example, we increase 
agricultural yield, perhaps by 10, 15, 20, 100 times even. And what that means is we can grow the same amount of food on 100 as much land. If we care about ecosystems, we ought to like that idea. So if we figure out a way to generate energy using fewer resources out of our world and using less land to do it, that's an engineering feat. And that's a good thing to do. We've talked about the concerns of the uh, Cornwall Alliance and those who put together the Cornwall Declaration on Environmental Stewardship. We've talked about the beliefs that undergird our thinking on these things. And we've talked about our aspirations, the kind of world to which we look forward and that we want to help to bring about. We hope that lots of you will join us in thinking carefully about these things. We'd love to hear from you. If you have something to say that is critical, if you want to challenge us, take us on. We would be delighted to hear from you. Just write to us at stewards at cornwallalliance.org. Meanwhile, come on back for future episodes of Created to Reign. Thanks and God bless.